morning, everyone. You're going to take a seat. It's good to see you today. In this message series, we, uh, so far we've considered four of the top classic bad decision blunders. And our examples have come from individuals in the pages of the Bible. And our goal has been to, to learn from the bad decisions they made in order to not repeat their mistakes. We began with Esau, who sold his future because he was thinking short term. Then we looked at Rehoboam, the fourth king of Israel, who refused to accept wise counsel and ended up starting a civil war. Next was Samson, who let the pressure of what people thought of him shape his decisions. And last week, we talked about David, the fourth king, or the second king, rather, of Israel, who put himself in a vulnerable situation, which led to an affair with Bathsheba. And that decision brought conflict and death to his family for generations. We're going to conclude this series today by talking about a common thread to every bad decision. It's common to each of these four that we've talked about so far, and that is the decision to factor God out, to make our decisions without factoring Him in. Now, unlike the other four decisions, this classic mistake doesn't just show up in the moment of decision. It does, but it primarily shows up in the days leading up to the decision, the months, sometimes the years leading up to the decision. The best example of factoring God out is not so much a person in the Bible, but a people, the people of Israel. The Old Testament portion of the Bible tells, tells their story. It's a story that begins with tremendous hope and promise and ends in captivity and despair. Their story really is pretty much a template of the human story, a story of great hopes and dreams and potential that keeps getting tripped up by sin. Now, like it is with us, there are moments in the story of the people of Israel to to cheer about, but it's often followed by moments to to groan and then to mourn over. So what exactly does it mean to factor God out of a decision? Well, every decision that we make follows a pretty simple formula. First, we evaluate our situation. We'll call that the X factor. That's whatever situation is that we're facing. And then we consider the outcome that we would like in the future. This is what follows the equal sign in this decision formula. This is what we want to have happen. And then given the situation and what we want to have happen, we then decide what we should do in order to bring about the desired outcome we want. We'll call that the Y factor. Y is for you. It's what you decide to do in light of the X factor, the situation, and what you want. Pretty simple formula. X plus Y equals the outcome that we want. Now, we do this repeatedly in life because, well, life is always changing. And just because we made the decision that we thought would bring about the outcome, it doesn't always work that way. So we have to keep reassessing our situation in light of our desired outcome and then making a decision again and again and again. The big question in life is this. Is there more going on than just this formula, than just these factors? I think there is. I'm convinced that the formula looks more like this. G times X plus Y equals outcome. Now, G represents the God factor. And I know we've just moved from simple addition to algebra, so you may be swirling a little bit. So in case it's been a while since you've taken algebra, let me remind you that whatever is inside the parentheses is multiplied by what's outside the parentheses. So this is the formula that represents the fact that God is the multiplier behind the situations that we are facing and beyond the power that we do or may not be able to muster up in a situation. What this formula represents is that God is the largest factor in the outcomes of life. 
Now, this doesn't eliminate what happens inside the parentheses. It doesn't eliminate the importance of what we decide to do in light of our situation. But this does say that he is the largest factor in the outcomes, both in this life and then in eternity. The challenge as we make decisions is this. We can't see the God factor. The parentheses in this formula mark the border of what is visible, what we can see. We can't see beyond the parentheses. And so it's very easy for us to factor God out when we make decisions. Not because we decide, I'm not going to factor God in, but because we can't see him, he just kind of isn't a factor sometimes. Now, that's exactly what Israel did again and again and again. They were called the people of God. That's, that's their name, the people of God. What that means is this formula was their national identity. But repeatedly, especially when they were under pressure, they made their decisions inside the parentheses and factored God out. Now, we tend to do the same thing. In the book of Isaiah, God gives us an analysis of their decision-making and the difference between factoring God in and factoring God out. Now, the situation that they are facing at this point in the, their story is the Assyrian army is advancing, advancing against Jerusalem. And Assyria was the, the dominant power of the day. They had the biggest army. And so this was a dire situation. And they had a lot of decisions to make. And in light of this challenge and the decisions they were facing, God says this to them in Isaiah chapter 30, verses 15 through 18. This is what the sovereign Lord the Holy One of Israel says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Two things they really needed, salvation and strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. We got to get out of here. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five, you will all flee away till you're left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. And we're going to work our way through these verses this morning. But it begins with God saying some interesting things by way of advice. Repentance and rest, quietness and trust. That is a strange way to prepare for the invasion of the largest army of the day. I mean, how will repentance, confessing your sin to God, and rest, taking a nap, how is that going to help prepare the defenses? This is not a time for repentance and rest. This is a time for action. And in what way will quietness and trust in God help strengthen and train the soldiers for the upcoming conflict? Well, it, it won't. The point that's being made is this. Without God, it really doesn't matter how long and how hard you train and how brilliant your military tactics and plans are, you will fall before this great army. Your only chance is to get God involved, and this is how you get him involved. Now, this is not only the case for their dire situation. It's also true for our life and our situations. This Friday... I'm going to be having surgery to address a chronic infection in my cheek sinus. Now, for me, this has been part of my X factor this year. 
You know, I've had multiple scans and doctor's visits trying to figure this out and deal with this, but nothing they prescribe, nothing they've done so far seems to reduce the infection. And the concern is that if, if it's left alone, it's going to start eating away at the bone, separating the sinus from my brain. Well, that sounds bad. So the advice now is that I need to have surgery to clear out that sinus. It's a fairly routine surgery. But how does God exactly factor into a decision like this? It just seems like a medical decision. I mean, like with Israel, it seemed like a, a military decision. How does God exactly factor into that? How does God factor into my decision? How does God factor into maybe the decisions you're facing? I mean, it just seems like it's a, an X plus Y equals outcome. I've got an infected sinus. Best medical advice is surgery. So that seems like the right thing to do. Hopefully the outcome is a cleared up sinus. So how, how do we include God in that? I mean, I've, I've prayed about this, but to be honest, when I met with the doctor recently and this was her advice, I said right away, yeah, let's do it. I didn't take a lot of time thinking about it and praying about it and saying, God, you know, I, I need real clear direction from you on whether I should make this decision or not. I, it seemed pretty obvious to me. So this is the kind of decisions we tend to face on a daily and weekly basis. Maybe not surgery kind, but, you know, this kind of thing where it's like, I think we know what to do. So what does it mean to factor God in and God out and just kind of the routine decisions of life? Well, we tend to factor God in or out, primarily not decision by decision, but day by day in the patterns of our life. Not so much of the decisions like this. It's the patterns of our daily life that will either factor God in or factor God out as we make our decisions. Patterns like these, repentance and rest and quietness and trust. So we're first going to follow this passage by looking at what does it look like to factor God into our decisions and the patterns of our life, and then we'll switch, as the verses do, to look at what it looks like when we factor God out. So first, factoring God in to our decisions. There are two doors <coughs> that get us beyond the parentheses, to get us outside of what we can see into the realm of God's power and what he can do. Door number one is God's salvation. That's what it talks about here is his salvation. That is the power of God to save us, to clean up the messes that we make and to rescue us from the dire situations that we find ourselves in. Now, Israel at this point was facing the most powerful army of the day. They were no match for that. Their only real hope was that God would save them, that he in some way would step in and rescue them. And we face similar odds in different parts of our life today. I mean, it may be the impossible odds of a relationship got bad, gone bad, maybe a marriage gone bad. Could be the odds that seem impossible now of a child that's kind of jumped off the deep end and they're in rebellion and just making a mess of things. Or it could be, personally, a pattern of sin that we've been struggling with maybe for decades and we just can't seem to get the upper hand in. Or maybe it's a, it's a dark emotion that we just can't shake. Now, we've tried to save ourselves in these situations, but we just can't. It's because, we, well, we need God's help. Now, the door of salvation opens on God's side. He steps in to save. But there are two ways we can knock on that door and ask for the salvation. And that's what it says here in these passages. In repentance and rest is your salvation. 
It's when we, first of all, repent and admit our sin before God and decide to get back on track with him. Whenever we do that, we are knocking on the door of salvation and saying, God, I, I, need, I need to be rescued here. I need to be forgiven. I need to be helped. There is no single phrase in the Bible that God responds to more quickly than this. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's repeated over and over again. And almost every time someone says that, God literally moves heaven and earth to respond. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Repentance. Now, there's a capital R kind of repentance and a small r kind of repentance. Capital R is it's kind of that big moment when you look at your life and you realize, I'm a, I'm a mess. I, I have got to change. I've got to turn things around. And in that moment, you ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior. You realize that you're not and never will be good enough. And you accept the offer of forgiveness that Jesus paid for with his own life. And in that moment, you are made right with God. You are saved. Capital S, saved. With capital R, repentance. But life from that point goes on. And the sad thing is, you still sin. Even after you've made that big capital R, repentance. And problems still occur, even though God has forgiven you and your relationship with him is, is repaired. And that's where small our repentance is needed. So you confess today's sin, and then tomorrow's sin, and then the next day's sin. Not because if you don't, the forgiveness offer is canceled. No, but because Jesus is not only Savior, he's also Lord. What that means is, having been saved, you now want to follow him. And you need daily saving help with the problems that you're facing. Whenever we're in a tight spot, like the Israelites were, repentance seems kind of counterintuitive. I mean, just think about their situation. The army is approaching. Maybe the scouts started first sending messages. They're five days away. And then three days. And maybe now you can actually see the dust clouds of this massive army approaching. Who has time in that moment to drop to their knees and confess sin to God and get back on track? we got to run. It makes more sense to react, to run, than it does to repent. And that's why the word rest is next to the word repent. In repentance and rest is your salvation. Rest is that important thing that creates the space in our life that's required to honestly look at ourselves in order to see what we need to repent of and how we need to get back on track. As long as we're moving at the regular pace of life, we just don't really see ourselves. It's when we stop, it's when we pause, that we create the space to really repent. And that's when God's saving power gets involved in our situation. The second door on the parentheses is strength, God's strength. This is the power of God beyond the parentheses to help us just with the challenges of life. And this one also, this door also has two ways for us to knock on. The two are quietness and trust. In quietness and trust is your strength. 
Now, this is not talking primarily about verbal quietness, but about quietness of the mind. That's why it's paired with trust. These are paired together. That's the idea is that you, you quiet your mind because you trust in God. You repeatedly tell your worried mind, shh, 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 be quiet. Stop it. Because you're confident that God will come through. The opposite of quietness is worry. That's the opposite of quietness. When you worry, is your mind quiet? Oh, no, it's, it's whirling. And worry is thinking that is done in isolation from God. It is an, an inside the parentheses activity. That's what worry is. For me, right now, it's easy for me to worry about the infection in my head. So I have to keep telling my mind, shh, 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 be quiet. I met with a doctor this last week for pre-op. I said, Can, is there anything earlier? Because I'd like to get this infection out of there. Turns out, Friday's the day. I guess Kaiser's having a Black Friday doorbuster deal, so I'm going to line up six in the morning and hopefully, hopefully I'll get in. So Friday it is. But we just have to tell your mind, you know, be quiet, be quiet. Now like me, you're facing problems that need solving, things that your mind can get revved up about. Now it may not be Assyrian army sized challenges, but it's big enough to worry you. It's big enough to maybe shake you. So it would seem like the best thing that you could do with your Sunday today is to get a jump start on the week. Not take a rest, not take a break from your busy life to come here and consider what you might need to confess to God. And then to calm your mind before God and decide to trust Him with whatever you're facing. See, what, what this is, what we're doing right here right now, is a corporate repentance and rest, quietness and trust, weekly activity. That's what this is. And it's because in quietness and trust is our strength. And we do this because we, we have got to discipline ourselves to factor God in. We need his strength. And this reminds us, God is, as it says in this passage, he is the sovereign Lord, which means supreme power. And if that's true, then the biggest factor in your upcoming week and my upcoming week is not whatever situation we're facing, but whether or not we're going to face it alone or with God. So this is one of the two very practical weekly ways that we factor God in in the patterns of our life. You know, weekly worship. That's why this matters. The second way that I would recommend is daily time with God. It's often called a quiet time. That's how I first heard it, which I think is a perfect description of what it is. Quietness and trust. Quiet time. You carve out 15, 30 minutes. For me, and for most people, it's best at the beginning of the day, but it doesn't really matter. Just pick a time. And you, you read a portion of the Bible, and then you reflect on yourself and the past day, and you confess your sin to God. 
Now, if you've got nothing to confess, keep reading. <laughs> it's very helpful. And then you pray. You talk about, with God, whatever challenges you're facing. Maybe in the day, maybe in the week, maybe ongoing. It is a daily time of repentance and rest and quietness and trust. We need this every day, and we need to gather corporately to do this every week. But how did Israel respond to this offer of God's salvation and God's strength? Well, here's what we read. God says, but you would have none of it. And what follows is a description of what it looks like for both them and for us when we factor God out of our decisions. So that's the second part, factoring God out of our decisions. God gives us three indicators that we are stuck inside the parentheses. The first indicator is we move faster and faster and faster. Isaiah 30, 16, the next verse says, You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you'll flee. You said, we will ride off. You don't understand. These are fast horses. We'll ride off on swift horses. And God says, all right, therefore, I'll send some fast pursuers to track you down. Your pursuers will be swift. So what this is talking about is when the circumstances of life get harder and harder, we tend to pick up the pace. And this kind of makes sense. I mean, problems don't solve themselves. And armies don't just stop marching. What you need to do is find a horse, get on it, and flee. You need to start moving. But as the pace of life increases in the face of our challenges, what happens is a subtle belief begins to creep into our mind. It's not a moment where we decide this. But the faster and faster and faster we go in life, what tends to happen in our thinking is this subtle belief that, you know what? It's mostly, if not all, up to me to solve the problems of life, to save me. So what does God do in response to this? He does two things. First of all, he lets us run. I love it when it says, therefore, you will flee. <laughs> it's like, go for it. Find yourself a fast horse and run. You don't want to slow down and ask me for help? Then that's okay. You're free. Do what you want. Go ahead. Run. That's your choice. But know this. You will never run fast enough to solve your problems. You will get on your horse, and before long, you'll discover this horse isn't fast enough. Then you will need to find another proverbial horse. You'll need to find a swift horse. You'll need to take it to another gear. Life will get busier and busier and busier. Why? Because your pursuers will be swift. This is the second thing that God does. First of all, he says, go ahead, you can run. Second thing he does is, I'm going to keep up with you. I'm going to send pursuers that will be swift. He sends pursuers. What does that mean? They come in many different forms, but basically what God is saying is, I'm going to see to it that the pace of your life will never be fast enough to solve your problems. Just about the time you think, I'm going to get it all together, it's going to take off. And God's in this. Not to be mean, but to remind you, there's something outside the parentheses going on here. 
So we can let the circumstances of life drive us faster and faster and faster. Or we can take a little time each day and a little more time each week to get off our horses, time up, park them out there in the parking lot, slow down, and remember that God is our salvation and our strength, not how hard we work and how smart we are. Now, I'm not saying don't work hard. No, work really hard. But don't factor God out. Don't factor him out of your day. Don't factor him out of your week. Because in doing so, you will be factoring out of your life. But here's the challenge. When an army is pursuing, it takes a great deal of faith to get off your horse and rest. When the dust cloud and the sound of the hoofs and the clanking of armor is coming in the horizon, that's really hard to, okay, I got to get off my horse and spend some time with God. No, I got to run. I mean, this is the way it is for me. When I sit down to have my time with God in the morning, I can hear the army approaching. I mean, I, I can, my day is, I know what it is. And I know these challenges. And if I make the mistake of opening my email first, I can see the dust cloud of what's coming my way. And at that point, everything inside of me says, you got to get going. You don't got time for this. Get on that horse and get after it. And it's a choice to say, nope, first I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to charge hard. But first I'm going to do this. Same thing on the weekends. I mean, there's so many things that are just going to demand your attention on a weekly basis rather than this. And it's, it's just going to have to be a choice, a priority that either you do make or you don't make. But it's when we slow down that we have the chance to hear more and see more than just our circumstances. We get a chance to see God. We get a chance to glimpse a little bit beyond the parentheses. So when we factor God out of our decisions, first of all, we move faster. Secondly, as a result of moving faster, we tend to lose perspective on what's really important. Chasing your tail inside the parentheses will make you crazy. Here's the next verse, verse 17. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. The threat of five, you will all flee away until you're left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like, top, like a banner on a hill. What's this talking about? It's talking about what's going to happen because you are so freaked out is one Assyrian soldier is going to come over the horizon and a thousand of you Israelite soldiers are going to go, and you're going to run away. Why? Because that's that big of a threat? No, you've lost perspective. And if five of them come over the, the horizon, the entire army is going to run. You guys, you guys have lost perspective. You're, you're totally trapped in fear now. And here's what happens. The more we worry and think in isolation from God about what might be, the less clear we are about what really is. Worry is an invitation to live in unreality. Because you're thinking about what might be, not what is. I mean, when you worry, you're imagining, I don't know, maybe let's say 10 different possibilities, scary scenarios about what might happen. 
And of those 10, only one of them could possibly happen because they can't all happen. So only one could possibly happen. And most likely, none of the 10 that you're imagining will happen. So worry is kind of like revving the engine of a car without ever putting it in gear. You're revving the engine of your mind faster and faster, but you're not actually making any decisions. You're just, oh no, what about... You're just revving your mind. And what happens when you just redline a car for a long period of time, day after day, month after month? Well, eventually it breaks. And that's what happens to our mind. What will happen is we will begin literally to lose our mind. As it says, a thousand will flee at the threat of one. That's that's craziness. At the threat of five, you're all going to flee away. You know, it'll get to the point where all, all one person has to do is say, boo, and a thousand of you go, ah! and you'll run. That's not logical. One person is no threat to a thousand. And five people shouldn't be able to get an entire army to run and abandon its flag sitting there on, the, on a hill or its flagstaff on a mountaintop. In other words, just five people, and what's going to happen is the only thing left of this army is going to be a flag flapping in the breeze on the top of a, of a hill. You had the high ground, you had the numbers, and you freaked out. The faster we go, the less we're able to see God, and the scarier this world becomes to us. Right now, I think the news, however you ingest it, pretty much consists of them saying, boo, and everyone going, ah! That's really what happens. Boo. Oh, no, the economy. Is it going to crash again? Boo. Oh, no, the president. Is this going to be the first time in our nation's history that a president is removed from office? Oh, no. Oh, no, the environment. Are we all going to drown or fry? Oh, no. Now, I'm not saying, hear me on this, I'm not saying that these and the other problems in our world are not real and we should ignore them. Nothing should be done. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that after a long time, inside the parentheses, these problems and every problem is a lot scarier than it should be because we've forgotten God. Oh, no. Is the economy had a long enough run? Is it just, is it going to crash next year? I don't know. Maybe. But God. Oh, yeah, right, God. All the politics and the drama that just keeps ramping up. Oh, no. But God. Oh, right, right. What about the environment? Uh, Oh, but God. Huh. That changes everything. In fact, I recommend building a pattern in your life where you fast from the news occasionally. I mean, maybe one day a week. Just take a day off. In fact, I have a crazy recommendation for you. This week of Thanksgiving, you might consider taking the entire week off from news. I know what you're thinking, but I won't know what's happening. Oh, no, you will. (laughs) Because almost nobody's going to do it, right? So they'll tell you. But just take a break. And if, if you've ever done this for at least a week, it's an amazing experience. After a week of no news, to watch or listen to or read the news again. You realize, wow, I didn't realize how scary this stuff was. 
how the perspective changes me. Take a break from time to time to get God's perspective on what's going on. So we lose perspective. Then we get impatient. Verse 18 says, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. This is amazing. What this is saying is God is not indifferent to your situation. He wasn't indifferent to what was happening to Israel back then. He's not indifferent to what's happening to you now. He longs to be gracious to you. He's not just like, okay, they're in trouble again. No, he he is eager. The image is he's sitting on the throne of heaven, leaning forward, longing to be gracious to us. That's amazing. He will rise up from his seat of power to display his compassion on our behalf. Why? Because he's a God of justice. And he sees whenever wrong is done to you and to me, and he will respond to it. That is great. But then there's this last phrase. Blessed are all who wait for him. Wait? Well, that's the main problem that we have with God and why we tend to factor him out of our daily life. His response time is way too slow by our standards. And his salvation and strength, great. But if they don't arrive on time, not great. And it turns out they don't arrive on our command. They operate at a pace that is different than our problems. And they do this not because God is messing with us, but because he is sovereign. And it turns out, as shocking as this is to us, there's actually more going on in the eternal plan of God than just us. There is us, and this is how we, we will see justice eventually. But maybe not right now. Waiting is not a passive activity. It's actually a very active activity. You know what the action is? The action is to decide to keep your seat. That takes a lot of restraint. It's an active decision to sit and wait for God to rise first. What tends to happen is it's almost a little game of chicken. You know, God's on his throne, and we're sitting in our seat, and we're, are you, are you going to, okay, you're not, okay, okay, so then I'm going to take care of this. That's what goes on over and over again. Now, it's not that we should just sit and not do anything. But when we start making our decisions based on the fact that, you know what, God's going to do nothing, so I've got to do everything, then we factored them out. What does that look like? Well, maybe, for example, you're single. And you'd rather not be single. And you wonder, is God ever going to provide me with a soulmate? I mean, I've been praying about this for a while. And I don't see one. So you wait. You keep praying. Keep doing the right things that you need to be doing. But it seems like God's just sitting there doing nothing about this. And so finally you're like, all right, and you rise to take matters into your own hands. And you push the issue. And you start dating somebody, and oh, there's all kinds of red flags. But you ignore the red flags. You push through all the wise counsel because you're sure. And you think short-term because you want this. 
And you put yourself in a vulnerable place because you want this. And you end up maybe marrying somebody that you shouldn't marry and regretting it for decades. Or maybe you're facing a financial problem. And you pray and you ask God for financial help. And he makes it clear that part of his help is you do things his way. And so you put him first in your life. Part of that means is you put him first in your giving. But things don't change and they stay bad. And you assume, you know what, this just isn't working. So you stop putting him first. And you rise to save yourself. And what tends to happen, I've seen this again and again, is all the help and salvation of God that may have been just around the corner is, is never seen. Or maybe you're in a position where there's someone in authority over you, maybe a boss at work, and you've been waiting for some time for them to get a clue and do what you think they should do, which, of course, is what they should do, right? But they just seem to not be getting it. And so we factor God out and take matters into our own hands. We, we ignore the possibility that God might be working through the authority in our life because that's what Scripture says, but we're Americans, and we don't believe that at all. And in doing so, we, maybe we blow up a job that could have been a, a blessing in our future. Or maybe we blow up an important relationship or a set of relationships. And we miss the blessing of seeing God's strength on display and to experience God's often last-minute salvation. So what I'm saying is, is in the heat of the moment, it's really easy to think short-term. It's really easy to refuse to accept wise counsel. It's almost automatic to allow the pressure of what people think to warp our decisions and to put ourselves in a vulnerable position. And if you come away from this message series looking at these four saying, okay, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to do that, that's not going to be enough. Because in the heat of the moment, under right conditions, under pressure, we'll all do all of these. It's as we decide to factor God in, not in the moment of decision, but in the days and the weeks and the months leading up to all of the decisions that we make, that's going to increase or decrease, depending on what we decide to do, whether to factor them in or out, our chances of not making one of these classic bad decision blunders. So if you're not spending time with God on a daily basis, start doing it. If you started doing it and you've stopped, that's okay. Get back on track. Don't feel bad about it. Just start doing it. I mean, if, if you miss a meal, you say, oh, I can't believe I missed lunch. Well, you just make up for it. Eat a little more for dinner. You know, just, it's okay. Start spending time with God. If you're new to the Bible and you're not really sure where to begin, a couple thoughts. One, I would recommend maybe start with the story of Jesus. It's contained in four books called the Gospels in the New Testament. They are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Gospel means good news. I'd encourage you to pick up one of those. The shortest one is Mark, so you might want to start there. You know, just take some time and read through it. After that, you might want to move to the book of James in the New Testament. It's very, very practical, short, just so many great truths in there. Just start reading that and then expand from there. And then make this gathering a top priority in your week. Now, both of these are going to require continual effort. Maybe you decide right now, okay, I'll do this. 
Well, come Wednesday, the sound of the army of your challenges are going to make it a real challenge for you. You just have to decide. We just have to keep getting back on track with these things and keep factoring God in. So again, the first verse, Isaiah 30, 15, God's great offer. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Let's pray. Father, may those last words not be true of us. We need all of your salvation and all of your strength. We need every bit of it, not none of it. And it's so easy for us to allow the challenges and the pace of our life to just crowd out you. And you don't, you don't demand. You continue to offer. You're always there. We thank you. So I pray for, for all of us as we approach this season and the thoroughbreds of the Christmas horses are charging out of the barn. We pray, God, that you would help us to carve out the time for repentance and rest and quietness and trust. And God, we pray that you'd save us and you'd strengthen us. We sure need it. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.